continuing our series in the book of Acts, learning from this wonderful book in the Bible, learning different lessons. There's so much for us in the book of Acts, this book that was written that we might see how the gospel was carried from Jerusalem through Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth as his people witnessed in the power of the Holy Spirit, as God's people witnessed in the power of the Holy Spirit. So we've been following this really epic story, and today we are going to look at the story of Cornelius and his conversion. Consider this important story in the book of Acts and the things that God would have to teach us through Acts chapter 10. So let's go to the Lord and ask him to speak to us, to be here with us, to speak to us, to teach us, to change our lives and glorify his name through the ministry of his word. Lord, we thank you for Acts chapter 10. We thank you, Lord, for your word and your commitment to to speak to your people and to create life. Lord, you are a God who speaks and, and things happen. There's life from your word. And Lord, that's always how it's been from the beginning. And that's how it will be to the end. Your word will endure forever. And Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the life that it brings. It's not just black and white uh, text on paper. It is living. It is your word. And when you speak, things happen. So Lord, would you speak today through the preaching of your word? Would you speak to us? And would you bring life in us and through us, Lord, to our families, to our neighborhoods, to our community, to your glory. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that it's all because of you, your righteousness, your bloodshed, your uh, sacrifice that's pleasing to the Father that covers all of our sins and provides for our righteousness. We thank you for your resurrection, Jesus, and the new life we have in you. So because of you, For your glory, we pray you would do all this, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Let's take a look at Acts chapter 10, the story of Cornelius and his conversion. And it says in chapter 10, verse 1, At Caesarea there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius, and he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now... Send men to Joppa and bring one Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the seaside. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. The next day... As they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. 
In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time, What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times. And then the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I'm the one you're looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man, who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So he invited the men to be his guests. The next day he rose and went away with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. And on the following day they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up, I too am a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then, Why you sent for me? And Cornelius said, Four days ago, about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon a tanner by the sea. So I sent for you at once, and you have been kind enough to come. Now, therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all, you yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. 
But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the words. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. The wonderful story from Acts 10 of the conversion of Cornelius. What a dramatic story. What an amazing story full of, full of just so many things. And Luke has chosen to feature this story prominently in the book of Acts for many reasons. Many reasons. Uh, some key reasons that... I would want to highlight. First, we've been learning in Acts about this transition of the focus being on the gospel in Jerusalem among the Jewish people to the focus being the gospel really for all nations, including Jew and Gentile. And in the flow of the book, we see the, the, the emphasis of Luke shifting from Jerusalem as the center to kind of Antioch and really the whole, the whole world as the gospel goes out. And Luke wants his readers, he wants us, God wants us, to understand how this happened, what went into it. And so this story is featured prominently in the book of Acts. Cornelius is really the the first kind of whole Gentile to be converted. There's some other half-Gentile types or Gentiles that were probably uh, worshipers of God in the synagogue and near uh, almost converts the Ethiopian eunuch, but, but Cornelius is the first guy that's really a, a, a full Gentile. And so this is an important story. And, and so we see in the story some key things. First off, uh, the guy that's involved in this story, one of the key guys in this story, is Peter. Now, Peter is an apostle, and he's an apostle really to the Jews. He's a guy who grew up in Israel, in Palestine, and would have grown up, we know from the story, as a a strict Jew. And so the idea of Peter actually going forward and reaching out to a Gentile like Cornelius was kind of out of the question for Peter, naturally. And so he's featured in this story to show us that something really epic is happening here, that, that the apostle to the Jews, this strict Jew, would actually do the things he did in this story. And that alone is, is one thing that Luke is highlighting. So we get that, boy, there's, a, there's something being said here that's really important. Secondly, uh, we didn't read it, but in chapter 11, Peter goes back to Jerusalem after this all happens. And they are they're a little bit upset, a little bit confused what, what's going on, and they question him. And we see what happened when he brought the story and he told these events that the, the church in Jerusalem, which, which would have been naturally perplexed by this all and even opposed to it, hears it all and, and says, basically concludes, then God has granted repentance also to the Gentiles. So they conclude 
Yes, we see that God has done this thing. So that's a hint in chapter 11 that, that this is important and that the Jerusalem church actually endorses that. That becomes important later on in, in Acts and in the New Testament as well. Really, though, the most important thing that we see in this section of Scripture is that it is God himself. It is God himself who is making sure this happens. It is God himself who is intent on seeing the gospel reach all nations. It's God himself who wants to use the Jewish nation and use the Jewish people who, who have come to him in Christ to make Christ known in the whole earth. It is God himself who weaves everything in the story, who makes it happen. It's God himself who in his providence provides for this story to happen. It is God himself who, who reveals himself, it, who, who creates a divine encounter for both Cornelius and Peter. And it is God himself who brings about the divine results in this story. This is a story about God's clear moving of his church in the direction that he wants, to see the gospel reach all nations. This story teaches us that God is passionate for the gospel to go to all nations. An application for us is not only to realize how this happened and the key transitions and how Jews and Gentiles fit into the story, but to really realize this is at the heart of God. And then to ask ourselves the question, is this my heart? Is my heart passionate for the gospel to go to all nations, for the gospel to touch all lives, God willing? Is that my heart? So as we go through this, let's, let's have that in mind as we learn from the Lord. So let's take some time to dig in. First, let's look at divine providence. Providence is the capital of Rhode Island, but it's also more than that. Providence is a word. Actually, the capital, I think, is longer than that, the official name. Uh, and the word providence is in it. It's a shortened form of the capital. The reason that the capital was named providence is because what the word means, providence, uh, God's providence, means God's providence. It, is, uh, it really speaks of the things that our sovereign God does to provide and arrange for his will to be done. So it speaks of really everything that comes from the hand of the Lord. So prov- God's providence is... The things are the things that God has done to provide, to work out his plan. And, and really the whole breadth of that is his providence. Not only that what he's done, most importantly, in providing Christ, but also his providence in circumstances and, and everything else. And we see in this story God's providence. It actually begins earlier in chapter 9. We didn't read that section. But remember chapter 9 is the story of Saul. And then there's this transition kind of Saul goes off and disappears for a while, a number of years uh, of ministry, it looks like, up in Tarsus. Kind of disappears off the scene of Acts, though. And we are introduced at the end of chapter 9 to Peter again. And Peter is active at the end of chapter 9. Peter is still the apostle over the Jerusalem church. The Jerusalem church is still active. There's still things happening. There's still growth. Still people coming to Christ. It, things have shifted a bit because of the persecution, but there's still things happening. And Peter is carrying out an apostolic ministry. Peter is a one of the apostles and a very important apostle. So he's featured at the end of chapter 9. And he makes his way. He's visiting the saints. He's caring for the church. And he makes his way to Lydda. And I think we have an overhead with a map. He makes his way to Lydda, which was about, I think, 20 miles away from Jerusalem towards the coast. And uh, you might not be able to see, but the 
You see the coast on the left-hand side. Jerusalem is around the D in Judea there. And Lydda is about two-thirds of the way over towards the coast. So he makes his way over there, caring for the church. He's in Lydda. And God uses him to heal a paralytic. There's a man who's been bedridden for eight years. And, and he says to him, uh, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And he's healed. And, God, and Peter has a ministry in Lydda. And he heals this man actually very much like Jesus healed a paralytic in the Gospels. We know of the paralytic that was let down through the roof and was healed. And Peter heals this man very much the same. And Luke is highlighting this to make a connection. That Jesus started his ministry and has continued it through the apostles. And now Peter is doing the same sort of things that Jesus had done. And we'll see later on in Acts that Paul actually is used by God for a similar healing. And Luke is using that to connect the Jesus, Peter, and Paul, to connect the work. The work that Jesus started continues through his church. Matter of fact, we see Peter go to Joppa from Lydda, and there's a woman there, a godly woman, who, who dies, uh, and he goes and he prays for her, uh, and he says to her, um, looking for the quote, he says, Tabitha, arise. And that sentence, that phrase, is only one letter different from something Jesus said, when he healed a young girl, saying, Talitha, arise, which means young girl. And so again, Peter's healing. He's used by God uh, in a healing. He's working there in Joppa, very much like Jesus. And, and so Luke has this, so we can see those connections, but also there's something going on here. God has led Peter out of Jerusalem to the coast, and he's about 20 miles closer to Caesarea at this point. He has no idea what's in store. But God in his providence had worked those things out to put Peter in Joppa and to get him out of Jerusalem. Because likelihood of Peter responding the way he did in Jerusalem, he would have had to face the Jerusalem church and their view of the Mosaic law at the time. They're, they're struggling through that, and it would have been a lot harder probably for him to have gone. But here he is in Joppa, and when this crew comes from the house of a Gentile, a, a centurion no less, he's ready to go with them. He's freer because he's in, in Joppa. So we see God's providence just in that. God arranging for Peter to be in Joppa. And, and, and we also see God's providence in the life of Cornelius. Reading between the lines a little bit, uh, Cornelius it's, is introduced as a God, godly man, a devout man a man who gives alms, who prays regularly, that God had been working in Cornelius' life already. This wasn't the first time Cornelius had heard about God. It really was, it was the end of many times of hearing about God, the end where he heard about the fullness of God shown in Jesus Christ. So this man had already been affected. We don't know the whole story. Perhaps it was by being stationed in Caesarea. He is uh, from the Italian co- cohort, and, and uh, David Ross, who's Italian, wanted me to mention that the first Gentile convert was actually an Italian, so all your Italians be happy for that. Um, I, um, uh, I'm not Italian, but my family is. And so, anyhow, I don't think that's the point of the story. Uh, he, he, perhaps so, in coming to Caesarea, God puts him in proximity with godly Jews, Jews who are awaiting the Messiah. And they have an influence on him. Perhaps it's a godly grandmother or a neighbor or a friend. We don't know. We don't know the whole story. 
But the point is that God has prepared this man ahead of time. Before he's introduced to the story, God has already been at work in his life. So we see God at work in Peter's life. We see God at work in Cornelius' life. And that is so important for us to get in this story. It's so important for us to get as believers to recognize that God is at work. And I don't know about you, but often for me, I arrive on the scene and I think that I am the center of God's redemptive activity. That I'm the one who brings the word and he's not been active at all till I arrive on the scene. Now he's ready to be active through me. And that is, that is just far from the truth. God is at work. He's a God who's active. He's a God who wants to reach out and touch Cornelius and his household and his relatives. And he wants to change the world through what he does here. And he's active, preparing Cornelius ahead of time. He sees the end from the beginning. And Peter comes on the scene, and Peter really doesn't do much at all in this string of events that God orchestrates. And we must understand that as believers, that God is the initiator. God is the one who is sovereign. It is God's providence that is happening around us, and we come alongside him, and we, yes, we do indeed partner in what he's doing, but we only serve a small part of what he is already doing. God is the one who works in providence. It's important for us to recognize that. I have enjoyed the book by Henry Blackaby, Experiencing God. There's so much in there that is true and uh, helpful. And he he says this about this sort of approach to life, understanding God's providence already at work and really joining in. He says in the book, God hasn't told us to go away and do some work for him. He has told us that he is already at work trying to bring a lost world to himself. If we will adjust our lives to him in a love relationship, he will show us where he is at work. That revelation is his invitation to us to get involved in his work. Then when we join him, he completes his work through us. God is at work. And we come along and look for where the Lord's at work and say, Lord, here am I. We should ask each day, really, God, what do you have to do today for me? You've sovereignly put me in the place I am in life, and you're at work. Give me eyes to see. Help me to see what you're doing, how you are at work, and asking him that day by day, because he is at work. And there's just so many stories. I, we could just interview folks here in the church who, who, who have come to know Christ or people who are close. You, you've been investigating. You, you've, you've been wondering about Christ. And we could ask you and, and really everybody uh, just some questions about what's gone on previously. And we would find out that there's been this long list of activity of God doing things in each of our lives. There's a story I read just recently uh, by uh, Christy Wilson, the former, the late, he's with the Lord, professor of missions from Gordon-Conwell in the book, uh, More to Be Desired Than Gold, that Phil Lowther showed to me. I've uh, been really enjoying this book. One of the stories in there, he tells, is about a man named Igor Yoremchuk, real guy. I I did the research, uh, and I'll tell you at the end. Actually, there's a picture. He said, I recently met a student from the former Soviet Union who was studying in the Dallas area. Igor Yeremchuk is from Kiev in Ukraine. Raised an atheist, he studied science at the university. And through his science courses, Igor came to know God as his creator. 
Then in the early 1980s, he fought with the Soviet Army in Afghanistan, serving as a, a gunship pilot on a helicopter crew. There on the battlefield, he saw men dying all around him while his own life was spared, and he came to know God as his protector. After returning to Kiev, Igor tried to find a Bible in Russian, but there were none available. Undaunted, he read every book he could find that attacked the Bible, devouring every scripture passage used to discredit God's word. And so through books written by atheists, Igor came to know Christ as his Lord and Savior. He went back and found an underground church, and they gave him a Bible. And he says, within two years, he came to know the Bible better than anyone else in the church and was called as their pastor. And today, Igor serves as president of Urban Biblical Seminary in Kiev, Ukraine. And that is him with his students. Uh, true story. God used the writings of atheists to draw this man to Christ. God is at work. Let us join him in what he is doing. The providence of God. Let's talk next about God's revelation or the divine encounter. God reveals himself in this story to Cornelius and to Peter in dramatic ways. We read in the story where Cornelius is praying. It's about 3 o'clock in the afternoon. It looks like Cornelius uh, prayed regularly, probably prayed as a Jew, which is at certain hours, three times a day. And he's praying, and an angel shows himself to Cornelius, and Cornelius says, oh, a cute little cherub angel. It's so nice to have you here. No, he doesn't say that. That's never what happens in the Bible. Angels are not cute. They are really scary. And so Cornelius, like everyone else in the Bible, when they see angels, is terrified. And he finds the ability to say something to the angel. I, I wonder if that ever would happen to me. I, I fear that I'd like, I just wouldn't be able to say anything. Angel. Um, but Cornelius is able to say, to, to respond to the angel. And, and the, angel, uh, the angel tells him what to do. It's an interesting side point to note that the angel doesn't proclaim the gospel to Cornelius. Do you notice that? In other places, too, we see things like that. We don't. I, I try to think of it, and if you know of an example, please let me know. Um, I know when they announced his birth, the angels sang of, of the Savior and in a sense proclaimed the gospel there. But the angels in Scripture are not the ones that do the evangelism. It's the people of God in Scripture who are called to do evangelism. And, and I, I don't know all the reasons why, but ultimately God has determined to do it that way in his wisdom, in his justice, uh, in his plan. And so angels don't evangelize. Angels come alongside and, and, and are messengers from God to, to equip and lead God's people and to do God's will. And this angel appears to Cornelius, tells him to, to uh, go down to Joppa and look for this guy named Simon who's called Peter who's in the house of Simon the Tanner by the sea. And so Cornelius gets his guys and sends them down, the three of them, one of them a soldier. And, and it looks like they marched all night because it's, I think, 40 miles there. And they arrive the next day at noontime. Um, so they're, they're, it's a pretty tough march. They get there, though, and they come to Peter. And God reveals himself to Peter as well. So God is revealing himself. He's encountering Cornelius. He's through the angel. He encounters Peter through this vision of this, of this sheet that comes down from heaven. And, and, and Peter's in a uh, trance, which means he's, he's basically an unconscious vision. He's seen something. It's like a dream, uh, but probably more vivid than a dream would be. And he sees the sheet let down. And then in the sheet, are, he's hungry. 
Uh, he wants to eat. And, and uh, God has set him up, really. He's hungry and, and he's ready to eat. It's kind of like going to the supermarket when you're hungry. You're ready to get everything. You want to buy everything. Peter's like that. He's hungry. He sees the sheet let down. But what's in the sheet is not stuff he can eat, at least according to what he thinks. This is not stuff. Oh, this isn't what I want to eat. This is instead of the nice kosher food that I'm used to. This is like snails and grasshoppers and fish eyes and, and nasty stuff. And then God says, Peter, rise, kill and eat. And he, he says, combines those, those sentences that Peter often does. No, Lord. Uh, they don't go together. No, Lord. Those are two contradictions. Uh, basically says, you know, no, Lord. By no means, Lord. For I've never eaten anything uncommon or unclean. And God says to him, what God has made clean, do not call common. And three times the sheet is let down. And God is very clear and revealing to him. And then it goes on as he's like totally perplexed. I don't know what this could mean. Um, And I mean, just we have to understand as a as a Jew, uh, part of of their worship of God at the time under the Mosaic Covenant was to avoid these unclean foods as worship. It was a faith thing. It wasn't just, you know, good food versus bad food. It was faith. And so, so this is really messing with Peter. He doesn't probably know. I don't know what's being said. And God, tell me to do this. And that would be disobedience to the Mosaic law. And, you know, he's perplexed. And at the same time, though, God works it out. The, the men arrive and uh, they call out. And then the Spirit of God speaks to Peter. And says, I want you to go with these guys without hesitation. So God himself is revealing. He's speaking. He's working in this story. He's working in Cornelius. He's working in Peter in very powerful ways, very clear ways, uh, very strong ways. There's, there's a lot of revelation of God going on here. God is making it really clear that he wants to do something here. He wants to work. And so Peter comes down and then he ends up going with them. And, and that just the whole idea for a Jew to, first off, to even consider eating things that are outside the law. And then the idea of going to be with a Gentile and, and going to their house. Um, and then even going in the house and spending time with them was just so out of the question for them. And again, we have a hard time understanding this. Uh, part of it is it is... Though the Old Testament is full of the call of God's people to be hospitable to those outside the nation, to be a light to the nations, and that's very clear, uh, because of some of the prohibitions in Scripture that had to do with worship of God, avoiding some of the sinful practices around them, and because of their history as a nation dealing with Gentiles, their view of the Gentiles basically was that these Gentiles are really all that's wrong with the world. They represent all that's wrong with the world. They are godless, they are licentious, they are are evil, and they keep on wanting to attack us and destroy our nation. So they were their bitter enemies. So the idea of befriending a Gentile was just out of the question. So they basically didn't go in their houses. They they would consider themselves, I think, to be unclean to go into a Gentile house. Yet Peter does this. He goes there. And it is just so clear that, that this is the Lord's doing. Though Peter doesn't want to go, God wants him to go. God wants to use Peter. He wants to reach Cornelius. God wants to reach all nations. That is the heart of God, to reach all nations with the gospel. And we need to get that. We need to understand that. And God is patient with us, but we see so much. We see 
the word full of examples like this. We see the whole book of Acts just full of, of God on the move, of God doing things, of God being active as, as His people take steps of obedience. God meets them and uses them, and there's just thing after thing that happens. And I think sometimes for us as Christians, we, we misunderstand God's heart. We think, maybe we interpret adversity, we interpret rejection as that, well, God's just not active, God just doesn't care. But that's not what we see in Scripture. We see a God who's passionate to reach the nations. We see a God who does extraordinary things to get the gospel to Cornelius and through the example of Cornelius to get the gospel to the the world, to spread it from, from city to city. And Paul goes out and his team goes out and there's just so much that happens. And personally for me as a Christian, some of the most powerful demonstrations of the, the ministry of the Spirit has been in the context of evangelism, has been in the context of sharing Christ with non-believers. So if you want to see people healed, if you want to see God demonstrate his power, if you want to see people uh, be, have their lives turned around, if we want to see dramatic moves of God, I think we need to get involved with the things that are on God's heart, and he'll be pleased to pour out his spirit. I've seen things. I've seen some of the most powerful healings. I've seen words, uh, prophetic insight into people's lives. In those contexts, it really just outdoes other contexts. Not that God doesn't care about his people. He loves his people. He wants to minister, and we've seen him do that. But God is passionate to see the gospel touch people's lives. Do we look at the world that way? Do you? When you look out at the world around you, do you see a lost world only? Or do you see a world that God wants to reach with the good news of his glorious son? Has your understanding of God's sovereignty somehow been tainted to justify ignoring the mission to the world? Let me say that again. Has your understanding of God's sovereignty somehow been tainted to justify ignoring the mission. I ask that question because I think we all need to ask ourselves that question. Has the comfort of sovereign grace, as precious and as important as that is, has it put us to sleep for the mission? And I ask that because I think when I ask myself the question, I have to say yes too often. Yes, too often. Too often, I am not aware of God's passion for the lost, God's passion for the mission, God's passion for the glory of His Son in His own glory in all the nations, God's passion to touch lives, God's passion to reach greater Havel, God's passion to touch New England, God's passion to have a church on fire with the gospel for our good, our joy, and the blessing of those around us. God is passionate about these things. And if we think otherwise, we're wrong. We're wrong. Acts 10 teaches us that. The book of Acts teaches us that. And we must avoid the heresy of what's called hyper-Calvinism. And I think in our brains, I know in my brain, I reject that heresy, which is a heresy that says because God is sovereign and He's the ultimate author of salvation, therefore we don't really want to need to do anything. He's sovereign, it's His grace, He's wise in His plan, so we just sit back and let Him do His work. 
And it, it gets even worse at times. He's sovereign. His grace is sovereign. So we really don't need to be reaching people for Christ because he'll do it. He's sovereign. That's a heresy. Now, I know, I don't think there's anyone here in their mind who's going to comply with that, but do you in your actions? I do. And I don't want to. I don't want to. Yes, I I want to treasure sovereign grace. I want to treasure that it is God who rescues sinners, not me. I want to treasure that we're all here because ultimately He has chosen to be merciful to us. I want to treasure that. But I don't want to be unbiblical in where I take that and neglect His passion for the loss, His desire for the mission. For all we know, He has His sight set on every single person around us in this area. For all we know. We don't know. What we do know is this. He's passionate to reach the lost. That's clear. Christ was passionate to reach people's lives. That's clear. Listen to Charles Spurgeon, a godly Calvinist preacher who says, if we could put this up, if sinners, if sinners will be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our bodies. And if they will perish, let them perish with our arms about their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, at least let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions and let no one go there unwarned and unprayed for. That's God's heart. That's to be our heart. We see it in other scriptures as well. Jesus himself says in John 4:35, this is the memory verse from this passage today, he says to his disciples as as he's ministering to Samaritans, which would have been the last people his disciples would have tried to reach, as he's there loving this woman and her whole town, they come back as the town comes out. He says, Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. And then he says in Matthew 9, something similar. It says, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. The problem with the harvest is not the harvest. It's the laborers. The harvest is ripe. There's a harvest out there. It's the laborers. God wants a people that are on fire for the gospel, depending on his power, walking as witnesses like we see in the book. And he will use us if we do that. Yes, all the results are up to him ultimately. We can't control the specifics. But he will work if we walk in these things. I want us to be stirred up as a church. I believe one of the things the Lord is after in our series in Acts is to do just that. No, I don't want us going to the place where we think it all is on, depends on us, that we carry burdens that we're not meant to carry, that we try to look into the sovereign counsels of God in ways we're not supposed to. No, I don't, I don't want that. I don't want those things, but I do want us stirred up for the mission. I want us full of, of the heart of God for the mission, for the lost, that we would look to him and walk in his power and be like him. I can remember one semester when I was in college. I had a semester long, and I'm not sure all the reasons why, but it was a semester long 
uh, harvest that I was a part of. I was able to share the gospel with a good amount of people, and a, and a number of people came to Christ. Thinking of my life in terms of a four-month or six-month time period, probably the most fruitful time I've ever had in evangelism. I don't know all the reasons why. I mean, college ministry is a little different. Uh, God is sovereign. It might have been just a season, but I, I think there are some things. And one thing that was different about that semester was that when I walked around this semester, I, I went to UMass, Amherst, like 25,000 people, so in between classes, it's just everyone everywhere. And I got to know a lot of people. We did a lot of evangelism. But one thing I did differently that semester, when I walked around campus, instead of looking down at my feet or the ground, I looked up. And I walked around that semester looking up, looking at people, and expecting God to do something. I looked that semester, I believe, with God's eyes at people. I looked at people. I looked around, and I was expecting God to work. And you know what? He did. He did work. And I think sometimes that's how it is for us. We walk around with our eyes at the ground or somewhere else without our eyes out towards the harvest saying, Lord, what do you want to do today? And as I prepared this and thought about these things, just yesterday I was at the bank, and I just I was just aware of some things. I, I, the guy I was working with at the bank, uh, the, the customer service guy, started asking me questions. It turns out he knew a man by the same name as me who, who was killed a couple of years ago. Some of you in the Haverhill area are probably aware of that. Sad, sad story. So I got to interact with him about that and talk with him. And while I'm sitting there, He's doing my bank stuff. I'm talking with him. I hear uh, the teller start saying to another teller, what's, the, what's that old Sunday school song, Deep and Wide? And they were talking about something. I think it was a big, they saw this van that was really big, and so they thought it was funny. It was a deep and wide van. I don't know what the story was. But I heard them talking about that. And, 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 and there was just stuff going on. I had my eyes open. Now, I didn't go the next step, which I should have. I should have had an alpha invitation, and I should have gone over to the, the teller and said, hey, I, just in case you're interested in, you know, going back to the stuff you remember from Sunday school, we have Alpha going on and should have invited. I didn't do that, uh, but I want to. And it was a start for me. <laughs> shaking your heads. All right, let's talk. We'll have you come on up and you tell your story. No. Uh, yeah. Um, but it was just getting my eyes up. And I think the Lord wants to get our eyes up, that we start looking at the harvest the way he does and start expecting him to work. He's sovereign. His providence has been at work. This is his heart. He wants to work. And as we ask him and expect him, he's going to work. Finally, if the banker come up as we close, we see divine results here. Wonderful results. Dramatic results. Peter recognizes that it's not about Jew and Gentile. It's about faith and non-faith, that God is not looking whether someone's a Jew or a Gentile, but looking whether there's faith or not. He realizes that. He comes and he speaks. And you know what? He really doesn't say a whole lot. He, uh, he says in chapter 11 about what went on, he says, As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell. He's beginning to speak. He's just starting the message. It's almost like he goes there and they say, Okay, all right, uh, Peter, we want you to speak. And he says, Okay, the first word, he says, Jesus. And that's enough. They, they are converted. He doesn't do that much. He, he just speaks a little bit. He shares the gospel very simply. And God comes in power on their lives. The Holy Spirit is 
poured out dramatically here. They're converted and they're filled all together and they start speaking in tongues. Believe me, they probably had no clue what that was. The Spirit of God moved so powerfully. They start speaking in tongues and praising God together. And Peter is astounded at what has happened. He, he's barely said anything. And God's come in power to work. And he worked in a way that was uh, very clearly similar to what he had done on Pentecost so that Peter could see this is God. Just as the Spirit fell on Pentecost on God's people, his Jewish people, the Spirit falls on Cornelius and says, this, these are my people. Peter is convinced he knows this is indeed God who works. And God saves Cornelius and it looks like his whole household and Peter is amazed and says he's with uh, six brothers from Joppa, and he says we can't hold. Uh, was he, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people? Let's get them baptized. They're believers, and they were received into the community of God. And then it says, then they asked him to remain for some days. This Peter, who was appalled by the idea of eating unclean things, now spends some days, perhaps even weeks, living in a Gentile house, ministering to them. What? glorious results in the life of Cornelius and his family and in the life of the church. That is to, to stand for us as an example of how God has brought the gospel to Gentiles convincingly and as an example of God's passionate heart to bring the gospel to all nations, all peoples. Let us ask God for the same heart. Let us expect God to do according to his heart, as we live our lives among people who need to hear about Christ. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord. Lord, we ask you to forgive us, Lord. Forgive us for misunderstanding you. And at times thinking that you don't care about those who don't know you. Forgive us for that. Forgive us, Lord, for the lack of faith and discouragement that we walk into. Help us, Lord, to look to you. Thank you, Lord, that you have won us to yourself. And that it's your heart to reach all nations. It's your heart to reach this area. And Lord, would you help us to get our eyes up on you to look at people with your eyes and to expect you to work. And would you even this week, oh God, give us many divine opportunities to work, to be used by you in people's lives in which you've been already working, perhaps for years. You're the God of providence. You're the God who's passionate for the gospel. You're the God who brings glorious results. So do this in us. Be glorified in it, we pray. Amen.